Exodus chapter 15, beginning in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness, and they found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped thereby the water. Exodus 15, 22 through 27 is our passage this morning, and if you've been following along with us, you know that Israel started in Egypt, and then they got out of Egypt, and then they crossed the Red Sea, and now they find themselves in the wilderness. There's the abbreviated version of the first 15 and a half chapters of Exodus. If you're not sure how it goes, you can go back and read it. Pretty good story. It's actually really interesting. I say married people struggle with different things in terms of conflict, and we try to communicate these things to newlyweds, and newlyweds just simply refuse to believe us. They believe they're going to be the first couple on planet Earth that doesn't argue over money, doesn't argue over in-laws, doesn't argue over whose friends we're going to hang out with, and has perfect communication skills. If you've ever met a newlywed, you know this is the case. One of the things that they say, by they, it's this great and powerful they, uh, one of the things that causes conflicts really in any relationship, but maybe primarily in marriage, is not all of these little things. What causes the conflicts most of the time is this big fancy word, and we call it expectations. It's not so much that we have trouble with money and family and friends. The problem is our, our spouse or whoever, our friend or whoever the conflict is with, they aren't meeting our expectations and they had the gall to not know our expectations without us telling them. They should just know because our expectations are reasonable and everybody knows them. Sarcasm. I don't, if some people don't get it, but that was sorry. But that, so we, we have this expectation that uh, who does what in the house? Who does the dishes? Who cleans the house? Who does the yard work? Who cooks inside? Who cooks on the grill? And we have expectations, and primarily it's based on how we were raised and the relationships we're used to. And then when our friend or our spouse decides not to meet our expectations, we get really irritated with them, and they're not very smart. They should just know, because I shouldn't have to tell them. Well, this is what's happening with the people of Israel. They had expectations, and they were not being met. And so here's the title of the message. It's ridiculous, but that helps me remember things. Here's the title of the message. Are you ready? The wilderness is wildernessy. I'm serious. That's the title. The wilderness is wildernessy. And we're going to look at a couple of different ways that Israel failed to understand this. So first, this grumbling because the wilderness is wildernessy. Grumbling because the wilderness is wildernessy. I was told this story uh, 
some folks went on a cruise. I guess you can go on cruises. Maybe some of you have gone on a cruise. This particular cruise was not in the Caribbean. It wasn't in the, uh, it wasn't down Mexico. It wasn't Hawaii. This particular cruise was uh, through the rainforest. So you go and you navigate some of the different rivers in uh, South America, and you look at uh, foliage and water, and um, sure, it's very exciting. Uh, anyway, one particular night, the captain had what's called captain's Q&A. Is this a thing? Okay, apparently it is. So people could go to the meeting hall, and they could ask the captain lots of different questions about the plants they were looking at and where they were and these sorts of things. And so the captain was answering these questions, and finally a brave soul raised his hands. and said, Captain, yeah, okay, that's what, what can I answer for you? And the person says, listen, isn't this ship equipped with state-of-the-art forecasting equipment? The captain said, yes, as a matter of fact, it is. We know the weather that's coming and going, and we're able to detect that for our safety. And the person said... It's been raining three days. Is there any way we could take the ship where it's not raining? And the captain said, we're in a rainforest. Like the whole thing is a rainforest. And, and this, you, you picked the wrong cruise in many senses there. Why is it so raining? And these are the people of Israel. Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness. And they get in out into the wilderness, and lo and behold, the wilderness is just the wilderness. And they travel for three days, and they're anticipating coming to this watering hole, which comes to be named Mara. Now, this is a significant event. Likely what happened is they knew where they were going. Moses certainly was well aware, at least of this particular part of the journey, and they would have said, hey, in three days, we're going to get to Mara. It had a different name before this event. We don't know what it was, but it probably wasn't bitter water. It was probably awesome water. And so on the way, they don't have to ration their water. Why? The rest stop is three days. So they're watering their animals, letting their kids drink water, spilling it all over the sand, having a good time, turning on the sprinklers. And then they get to... Okay. Then they get to awesome water, and the water's not drinkable. It's been fouled. Somehow it's been fouled. It's, and now they have no water. They're in the wilderness, and now they're in real danger. You can't last that long in the desert without drinkable water, and now they get to what they were counting on as their water source, and it's not drinkable, and now they are, we could die out here. And so this was a serious situation, it wasn't sort of they were just a little thirsty situation or they were out of lip balm. They really could die. They expected good water and they didn't find it. And so it says this in verse 24, and this is the, the key verse for what we're thinking about here. The people grumbled against Moses saying, what will we drink? They grumbled because the wilderness is acting like the wilderness. Now, I want to draw a contrast between grumbling and complaint. So this is Psalm 142, the first couple of verses of Psalm 142. This is David has written this psalm, and he wrote this psalm when he was hiding in a cave because Saul was trying to kill him, or also what David called Wednesday. David says this, With my voice I cry out to the Lord, with my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. Verse 2, very important. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell him, I tell my trouble before him. 
So here David is making to the Lord a complaint. And I want to contrast these two ideas. David is talking about a complaint. Israel is grumbling. A complaint is this. Here's the reality of my situation, and it's awful. God, let me describe to you in detail why the situation in my life is awful and what I would like you to do about it. That's me being honest with God about the situation I am in and how it's making me feel. God, this is happening. It makes me feel sad. Please fix it this way. Complaint in our prayer should be a critical part of our prayer. I would actually suggest complaint should be a routine and regular part of your prayer. If you don't have something to bring before the Lord about how difficult your life is right now, you're probably asleep. There is something that you need to bring before the Lord. Lord, this is happening. It makes me feel sad. It makes me feel angry. It makes me feel scared. It makes me feel anxious. Will you please intervene in the following way? That's a complaint. It is holy. It is righteous. It is awesome. You should complain to the Lord a lot. It's a statement of the facts. Does God not know your life has trouble? You think that's a mystery to him? Is it a mystery to God how it's making you feel? We may as well just be honest with him about these things he already knows because he wants an honest relationship with us, and that involves us saying, God, here's what's happening. Here's how it makes me feel. Will you please fix it? Jesus does a great job of modeling this in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass by, remember him saying that? God, this redemption thing hurts a lot. If there's any way for it to pass by, that would be great. Not my will, but yours be done. The reality of a situation. So what's the difference between, between, uh, between complaint and grumbling? Complaint is saying, here's what's going on, here's how it makes me feel. Grumbling is this. My situation is this. It makes me feel uh, sad, so therefore, God is not good. See, that's a subtle difference. Complaint is saying, here's the facts. Grumbling is saying, there's something wrong with God if this is true reality. God must not be good if this situation is occurring. God must not be strong if this situation is occurring. God must be absent if this situation is occurring. The difference between complaint and grumbling is grumbling is an accusation against the character of God. And in the wilderness... The danger that the people of Israel felt drew them instead of prayerful complaint, it drew them into grumbling, to question God's character, to question his nature, and to question his plan. Moses typically, not always, typically we see him complaining to God a lot, only occasionally grumbling. The people of Israel in the wilderness we see grumbling a lot, and I'm not sure I can recall a point where they just simply are complaining in prayer. Moses' typical response to the, the difficulties that the people of Israel face is this. The Bible, you can do a search in Exodus, maybe in your uh, Bible software, you can Google it. How many times it says Moses fell on his face? It's a whole bunch of times. Something happens, Moses falls on his face. You're like, what a pathetic loser. Why are you falling on my face? Get up and fix the situation. And Moses would say, that's exactly what I'm doing, is I am going to make my complaint known to the Lord, and that's very different than grumbling. Grumbling is saying God is not good. Complaining is saying my situation is not good, but God will always be good. You see the difference there? It's a very important difference because 
I would uh, suggest that our prayer life would really be energized when we realize we can complain to God. Grumbling, though, is another matter. Okay, let, let me get, show you another example of this. It's in the book of Daniel, chapter 3, and it's a, an account that you're very familiar with. To, uh, three guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You've heard of these guys? So they've been captured by the Babylonians, and they've been taken captive from Judah, and now they find themselves in Babylon. They're very high-ranking officials in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar comes up with this brilliant plan. By brilliant, I mean the opposite. I'm going to make a gigantic golden image. When the music plays, everybody is to fall down and worship this gigantic golden idol. Okay, you remember this? All right. The music plays, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't worship the idol because they understand that that would violate their relationship with God. Their relationship with God was, su was such that they said, we don't worship idols, we worship God. This makes Nebuchadnezzar a little frustrated. Nebuchadnezzar is not used to not getting his way, so he calls them to his office, and he says, uh, guys, let me just clarify some of the expectations that you might notice in your job description. Your job description is one line. It says, whatever I tell you to do, you do it, or I kill you. Now, like, yeah, we realize that. So what he says is this. You know what? Because you guys are high-ranking officials, it's going to give you another swing at it. When the music plays, all you got to do is just worship the golden idol. Not a big deal. And here is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response to Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. The punishment for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for not worshiping the golden image, image where they were going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And they said, well, here's the thing. God can save us from the fiery furnace, or you might not. Either way, we're not worshiping your statue. Is that cool, bro? They didn't add that. They didn't say that. So here's the thing. Here's the difference between complaint and grumbling. What are they saying? Fiery furnace. That's a reality. Sounds hot. Here's how their rest in the Lord was revealed. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. So one more contrast between grumbling and complaint. Here's, here it is. Grumbling has a lot to say. Grumbling has a never-ending supply of words that needs to come out. Whereas faith doesn't have a lot to say because it's just going to rest. Have you noticed as you read through the book of Exodus, we don't hear a lot from the faithful people who aren't grumbling. Why is that? Because they're in their intent, resting in the Lord, knowing he's going to provide. There isn't anything that needs to be said. What needs to be done is chill out and enjoy the desert. No snow. It's great. Grumbling talks, faith rests. Okay, one more contrast here between what we see between uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and um, Nebuchadnezzar. And it's important because we need to understand where their faith came from. Their faith did not come from some sort of mystical understanding of the power of God, although they understood God was spirit. Their faith came from just a very frank understanding of reality. So let me draw the contrast for you, because I think this is what Daniel is doing for us. 
Nebuchadnezzar is saying, worship my God, and if you don't, you will go into the fires of hell. Worship my God, or you will go into my fiery furnace. If you don't worship my God, our relationship is separated. If our relationship is separated, you will be cast into the fire. Now, interestingly, God has a similar understanding. He says, here's the deal. Anybody who wants can have life in me. Anyone, though, who chooses not to have life in me will be separated from me forever. To be separated from God means we suffer death because God is the source of life. And the Bible makes quite clear to be separated from God forever means instead of being with him, we are not with him, and to not be with him is to be in the furnace of hell. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they just simply did the math. This is not complicated. If we worship your God, we avoid five minutes of burning and then burn forever, or we can worship God, burn for five minutes, and not burn forever. This is not complicated. It does require a faith to understand the Bible actually describes reality. See, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego weren't doing something brave, although it would require courage. They were doing something just consistent with the reality of the world. To abandon God is to abandon life. And to suffer in a furnace of Nebuchadnezzar is not that big a deal. How long does it take to burn to death in a fiery furnace? And not very long. I mean, I'm not saying it's pleasant. But it's not very long when compared to being separated from God forever. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying to Nebuchadnezzar, your judgment's kind of lame. Really, you're just going to burn us? Oh, okay. Well, you know what? We're going to stick with God. He can save us from your fire, or he cannot. But either way, you're kind of lame. We will serve the Lord alone. This is the difference between grumbling and understanding the real. They understood in the situation, the very hard situation they were in, God's still in it. What's the worst that could happen? They would die. And then they would be with God forever. And this is what would bring uh, Israel faith in the midst of their wilderness. And understanding the wilderness is there, but God is with them. And the, only, the, the worst the wilderness can do to them is take them from this world into life with him forever. Grumbling because the wilderness is wildernessy. One thing we should remember from communion this morning is we do follow a Messiah who marked the way of this life with a cross, didn't he? He showed us what life in God looks like before the resurrection. And what he is saying is the shape of this life is the cross. And when we're walking through this life and all of a sudden it starts to look like a cross, it gets really hard and there is suffering and there's difficulty and there's anxiety or fear. We're not in the wrong place. And in that moment is where by faith we can choose to complain to God and ask for his help. Or we can... Uh, express ourselves in grumbling, which is a way of expressing doubt uh, and fear. The wilderness is wildernessy. Look uh, with me, Acts 8, 20, I said Acts, by Acts I meant Romans. Romans eight twenty eight. a verse you're very familiar with, is what says, we know that for those who love God and, uh, I'm misreading it, let me start over. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So in the life we live now, the life that's shaped like a cross, the question 
uh, this verse answers the question, why in the world is this happening? And the reality is God is working everything out in our life for good. He has a purpose for each thing we're dealing with in our life. And in those things, we can decide to trust him or we can decide to doubt him. And the other thing about the wilderness is that is the best place to be forced into situations where we have to trust him. So as God takes us along this life and this life in the wilderness, he's going to routinely, on purpose, put us in places where we have to trust him because that's where we discover the greatest joy of this life, which is God provides uh, for all that is needed. So that's the next part of this. Look at Exodus 25, I should say Exodus 15, 25 and 26. God's power when the wilderness is wildernessy. Grumbling when the wilderness is wildernessy, and now finally, or secondly, God's power when the wilderness is wildernessy. Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. I mean, half a verse, really. They've got this major problem where they can all, they're all going to die. Moses chucks a log in, and the water's fixed. The Lord made a, them, uh, for them a statute and a rule, and he tested them. And he said this, If you'll diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I'll put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Okay, think of it that, this way. If you're going to buy a car that you need to use it, uh, to haul stuff up into the woods, so if you've got to go up logging roads and snowy roads, you've got to pull trailers. So what you can do is you're going to go try and find a vehicle. Maybe it's got four-wheel drive. Maybe it's got a lot of towing capacity. Maybe it's got a big oil engine in it. And you're going to maybe test drive it to make sure it can do what you need it to do, right? So you go and you go to the dealership and you find the vehicle you need. And then what you do is you drive it around town. Now, does that tell you if the vehicle will do what you need it to do? No, it doesn't tell you anything. In order to really see if it works right, you've got to get it up into the woods, throw a big old load on the hitch, and see if it will get the job done. What we do is, in using something, we decide whether or not it can actually be trusted to get the job done. And so this is what God is making clear to the people of Israel. He says, here's what is going to happen. I'm going to be taking you through the wilderness. I'm going to be putting you in situations on purpose that will force you to find out that I am trustworthy and I can get the job done. We're going to go into situations where your life is at risk, where there is discomfort, where there are all kinds of problems in order that your faith might be built up as I show up and accomplish my purpose in your life. So they cried out to him and the water was made sweet. I don't know why Moses had to throw a log into it. Some people have said this was an example that when the log was thrown into it, there was something chemically in the log that drew the poison out of the water. No, I don't think any. I think God just miraculously fixed the water, and Moses throwing the log into it is a way of showing people that God had accomplished this. And so what they were doing is, God is saying, listen, you're going to have bad water, you're going to have enemies, you're going to have lots of sand and sun, you're going to run out of food, and you're going to have clothes that are going to wear out. I am going to deal with all of these things over time so that you will learn you can trust me in any and all situations. What he wants them to do in the wilderness is discover that no matter what is coming, God has it handled. Over and over, God is going to demonstrate his power so that their faith in him would increase. 
And look what he says. He draws a connection with the people of Egypt. He says this, if you'll follow me, basically, if you'll trust me, nothing will happen to you in the wilderness that happened to Egypt. Because they might be tempted to say, well, none of these problems would be happening to us if we were still in Egypt. I might say they would be tempted to say that because they're going to say it many, many, many times. And what God is saying, listen, Egypt stayed home. How did that work out for them? I just decimated their economy. I nearly destroyed them as a people, and they weren't exactly safe where they thought they were safe. The safest place to be is where God is working, and God is working in the wilderness. And so God wants them to go through the wilderness to grow in trust, to understand his power, to understand his purpose, and to follow his ways. So what this means is the wilderness is not an accident. It wasn't that God said, boy, there's no way to get to the promised land from Egypt. Boy, if only planes were invented. Just fly them over. No, this was the plan all along. The plan was to put them in positions where they would have to trust in the Lord and his power. Obedience is just simply this. It's do we trust God's ways even in the really difficult times? We don't obey in order to get, in order to get God to be good to us we obey because God is always good even when it seems like things are falling apart. And that is what he is calling Israel to. I want you to obey me in the wilderness no matter what happens. When God says, listen, no matter what's coming, just trust me. Do you know what you ought to do? Oh boy, what's coming? It's way worse than you could imagine. But God wants us to trust him because no matter what's coming, he will be faithful in it. He is powerful, and his purposes are good. Obedience doesn't make God good to us. Obedience reveals if we trust that God is actually good. Obedience is saying, I trust God's purposes, even if I don't understand why this is going on. So going into the wilderness, the people of God had to understand he was going to put them in terrible situations on purpose so that they would learn to trust him. If they never got put in difficult circumstances, when would they learn to trust him? There would be no need. And he says, I'm going to build my trust in you by taking you through very difficult times. Okay, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. I think they're going to be up on the screen. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. This is what the prophet says. Speaking on behalf of the Lord, he's, God says this. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. So when you're going into the wilderness for three days, if you were doing it, you would plan all your water stops, wouldn't you? Would you map them out? And God says, my ways are not your ways. I'm going to take all of your water stops and make them bad. And then at each of those stops, you're going to have to learn to trust me. And we say, well, God, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense for you. It makes all kinds of sense for me. And God is saying, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And my ways are higher than your ways. Our thought is this. Do you know what would be a better idea, God, is if we never ran out of water? I'm just spitballing here. Just, you know, no bad ideas, right? And God says, that's a terrible idea. If you never run out of water, when will you ever learn to trust me? You're still arguing with God, I can tell. Philippians 
chapter 3. I'll explain to you why we're still arguing with God. Philippians 3.18. I'll read it. Uh, it's not up on the screen. Many, uh, for many of whom, and he's talking about those who, um, let me, I'll start in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you now and tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. What is the mark of those walking as enemies of the cross of Christ? Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, meaning they follow their appetites. If I'm hungry, my God is food. If I'm thirsty, my God is water. The reason God's ways don't make any sense to us is because what matters most to us, our default setting is this, what matters most is whatever I perceive that I want or need right now. If I am hungry, what matters most is that I get food. If I am thirsty, what matters most is that I get water. We are driven by our appetites. And that's precisely what we see in the people of Israel. This, this section, we're talking about water. Next week, we're going to be talking about food. They're driven by their appetites. So you say, what are God's ways compared with our ways? Our ways is whatever I want is actually a need, and I worship that whether it be security, whether it be money, whether it be food, whether it be a house, whether it be a relationship, doesn't matter. Whatever drives my appetites, that is not merely a want, it is a need, and it becomes a God to the degree that I say God uh, in not providing it is evil. God's ways are a little bit different. Here's what God's ways are. This is Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So the ways of Christ are not driven by appetites. The ways of Christ are driven by the glories of the kingdom of heaven. That the appetites I have here don't count a bit compared with the glories we will have there. And when I understand that what we have coming is better than what I desire here, that's an act of worship where I say, well, I don't need that that much. I don't need that food. I don't need that water. I don't need that relationship. I don't need that money because I got the glory of Christ coming. There is something better coming. God's ways are higher than our ways because he understands that our appetites get our, our, our priorities all messed up. If I don't have this, I'm going to die. If I have this, my life won't have, if I don't have this, my life won't have meaning. If I don't have this, my life is going to empty. And Jesus answers all of those things and says, what are you worried about? You've got the glory of the kingdom of God coming. Do we actually believe that heaven is that awesome? If we believe heaven is the way the Bible describes it, it's okay if your life here is lame. Now, I mean that a little bit silly because life in Christ is never lame. But we might be willing to set aside our appetites. So we see God's power in the wilderness because he's going to routinely make us confront our appetites, where we're going to have to say, Do I, is it God's way or my way? Is it what I want or is it what God wants? And God demonstrates his power over and over again in the wilderness. And maybe if we look back over the course of our life, we would agree. 
Has, has God showed up in powerful ways in your life? I would pray he has. We can reflect back. If God has showed up then, he's going to show up now. And God's ways uh, aren't our ways. And he is saying this. Listen, out in the wilderness where you have to trust me every moment of every day, that's the blessed, best place you could possibly be. Look what Proverbs 10.22 says as we uh, move, on, move to this last section. Proverbs 10.22 says this. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. What the, what the uh, author of the Proverbs there is saying is this. Here's how we get rich. We work ourselves to the bone, and we scrape together a little treasure before we punch out of this planet, right? Some of us scrape together a little more, and some of us scrape together a little bit less, but at the end of the day, we're just organizing a trash heap. I mean that in the nicest way possible, but the thing, according to the Bible, I've read how it ends, I don't want to spoil it, but it all gets remade. I don't know if you know, I, I'll let you read it. Oh, we have time. So, have you seen Slumdog Millionaire? This is an old movie. Anybody seen this movie? Okay, it's a good movie. I, well, I don't know, it might have some inappropriate stuff in it, I can't remember, so if, if it offends you, uh, Jeff recommends it. Um, <laughs> There's one scene where these kids, and it's sad because it's happening all over the world, but these kids are scrambling all over this trash pile because they're collecting all the recyclables and they're going to resell them and they use them in their homes. This is, what, this is what we're doing, folks. Like for some reason, we've convinced ourselves this thing is more than a trash heap. It, we ruined it. Sin didn't just sort of taint it a little bit, but it's still pretty awesome. It's ruined. And so we spend our days scratching together a little bit of our trash heap, and then we're standing, look what I've done. I collected an old toilet paper roll, and this, this one doesn't even have very much banana on it. You're like, that's weird. Well, that's what we do. And, and what he is calling, he's saying, I have a, God is saying in Proverbs, I have a greater blessing that doesn't require so much toil. It's called trusting in me and resting. This goes so against the American mentality. No, you don't get to just do nothing. You don't get to just do nothing. You don't get to just rest. Everything requires work. So I'm trying to remember what Jesus said at the cross. It's, what are the words? Oh, it's, it, it is finished. So what exactly are you going to do? Apparently it's done. You know what our job is? Chill out, bro. He's coming. Enjoy the fact. He just forgave you for everything you've ever done and you ever will do. That's pretty awesome. We get to, what's the word? rest. No more scraping, no more fighting, no more toiling. Let's take the blessing that he gives us, which is eternal life. Say, well, that's pretty awesome. Well, it turns out that God's kind of a nice guy. Have you noticed this? Well, maybe I'll worship him. This is how it works. So we're not doing to try to impress God. We're doing because God is impressive. I'm going to show up at church on, on the day I lost an hour of sleep. I'm going to sing songs to him, not so that he'll happy, be happy with me. I'm going to sing songs to him because he's happy with me. That's called worship. That's called enjoying the blessing of God's bounty, saying, I can't believe he just gave me his entire kingdom. I can worship him with every moment of my life, even in the wilderness, even when the wheels are falling off and I don't know what's next. Okay, we've got to finish this thing. Verse 27 Exodus chapter 15 says this. Then they came to Elam, 
where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. It's just a punchline. Israel freaks out for like 10 minutes, and then like around the corner, oh, everything's fine. Tell me that's happened to you a million times in your life with the Lord. Lord, what's going to happen? We run around like Kermit's frog with our arms over our head, waving it. Some of you haven't seen the Muppet Show. It's kind of old. And then like 20 minutes, oh, everything's fine. Now I feel silly. God's blessing when the wilderness is wildernessy. I read this story about the uh, 326 quartermaster division. The quartermasters, of course, they provide all the food and water for troops when they're deployed. And this particular outfit had their water filtration um, set up by one of the local rivers. Now, in countries like Afghanistan and Pakistan and these other places, river slash sewer. It's just they don't have plumbing and sewer systems the way that we have. And so you see this long pipe going into this river and then going over to the water filtration plant. And then that goes over to the mess hall where there's a water spigot to fill your water bottle. And so you're going, okay, sewer river. I hope what's going on in that building is really, really good at what it's doing. Because I'm, if I drink that, I die. But if I drink this over here, so what the soldiers have to do in this particular division, they generated 500,000 gallons of drinkable water per day. So those soldiers, when they pulled that spigot, they had two options, die of thirst or drink the water that the quartermaster division has provided for them. God's blessing in the wilderness. They go to the waters of bitterness, and they say God's blown it, or, oh, it's just salt water. Big deal. God can do bigger things than that. I just saw him part the Red Sea. Pretty sure he can take some salt granules out of a bitter water pond. God's blessing in the wilderness. And it says here, in God's provision, his whole plan was to show them I've got everything under control. They came to Elam. There were 12 springs of water, 70 palm trees. Now, there may have been actually 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. The hard part is, no, is whose job was it to count the palm trees, and why was that a priority? Okay, we get here. Everybody's dying of thirst. Okay, first thing first, let's make sure we know how many palm trees we got up in here. No, numbers are used a little bit different in the Old Testament. They're communicating a truth. And one of the things these numbers are communicating, not to say they aren't accurate, but they are communicating plenty of water and shade, 12 and 70, plenty. There's gallons and gallons and gallons of water. You can't drink this water down. This is water. You can take a bath in it, splash around, waste it, throw it. Plant a garden. This water's never running out. And there's plenty of shade. You don't have to worry about it. And so what God wants to show them is, listen, I'm going to take you in situations where you need to trust me. I want you to understand this is what life with me is going to look like. Plenty of water and shade. You can trust me. You can trust that I am going to take care of you every single moment. Christian band uh, wrote a song. The Christian band is U2. Say that. It might be. They wrote a, a song, one of my favorite songs. It's called So Cruel. And uh, the singer sings to his love interest. Uh, apparently, she wasn't nice. One of the lines of this song, I just think it's interesting. One of the lines of this song was the singer, Abano, says this I gave you everything you ever wanted. You, anybody know the song? You're going to act like you don't know it. Oh, no, I've never heard you two. 
I mean, this is an old song. I listened to this in college. I give you everything you ever wanted, and it wasn't what you wanted. So this, this love interest is spurning him. He's given everything she wants, whatever you want. Well, you want food, you want a car, you want a house, you want, what do you want, I'll get it for you, and that's not what she wanted. And this is what's happening to Israel. God is blessing when the wilderness is wildernessy. They don't want to have to trust God. They don't want God to provide water and shade when it's needed. What they want is to have water and shade without having to trust God. Do you know what would be more convenient, God, than having to continually trust you? Is if you just gave us enough water and shade, we didn't have to worry about it. The wilderness for the Israelites then means that God is cruel. So cruel. Because he's giving them everything they need. Listen, God, we don't want you to give us water and shade. We want you to make it so we never need to trust you for water and shade. They think they need the stuff of God so that they don't need God, but God understands something more than what they did. To have nothing and to have God is to have more than having everything without him. The Israelites want everything without God, and God understands to have God and have nothing else is to have more. The Israelites thinking, think that in order to need God on a daily, in-and-out basis means God is cruel. What God understands is for him to put us in situations where we have to trust him every day means God is loving because he knows what we actually need even though our broken hearts refuse to believe it. For God to say over and over and over again in the course of our life, I want you to trust me and need me only is not him being cruel, it's him giving you the greatest thing in the universe that is himself we can say it this way we want God's stuff but we don't want God and the fact is if we have all of God's stuff without God we'll miss God entirely and sometimes when we finally get to the end of it God will in fact let us have what we want there is a point in our life where we have refused God will he finally say you know what you can have what you want and it's not me God's blessing in the wilderness is not that they finally got shade and water. God's blessing in the wilderness is they learn over time, in the wilderness, I get God himself. That's God's blessing when the wilderness is wildernessy. All right, let's close with this. A couple of just application questions, things for you to, to think about, and you're like, I'm done thinking about this. Move on. Okay, well, suck it up, buttercup. Here we go. What is God's plan to enable you to grow in him and trust him more? He's got one plan to enable you to grow in him and trust him more, and it is this. It's the wilderness. It's the course of life that Christ has demonstrated is shaped like a cross. The plan is to take us through routine, day in, day out, things that are beyond our ability to handle that we might cry out to him and say God this is happening I need your help help me to trust you more God's plan is to take us through difficulty in order to build in us greater and greater trust in the book of Jude verse 16 the 
uh, author of the book Jude describes those who have missed that point and in the difficulties of life are grumbling. Jude 16 says this, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. He's talking about people in a church. Over the course of the wilderness, they said, we're tired of how this is going. We're going to pursue things to our own advantage, and they're grumblers and malcontents. What we need to do is we need in our hearts and the difficulties we face in the wilderness to be frank and honest with God about the difficulties we face. Complain loudly, complain honestly, but understand that the goal there is to have a greater trust in God and a greater trust in God removes grumbling, which is to say, God, this is hard. That means you must be mean. We can find God in his grace even in the greatest difficulties of life. Another thing we need to keep in mind, we need to pray. The whole idea of learning to trust God is to force us to our knees that over time we will see more and more that we need to pray in order for God to show up. We want to see God's power, and what's the primary way we see God's power in our lives? When we pray. If you want God to do something in your life, throw this out there for consideration. Ask him to do it. And you say, well, I pray. I prayed that one time, and he didn't do it. So I don't know what's up. I guess i got to figure it out. And we, you can look at the, many of the parables of Jesus. He says this, pray and pray, and then when you're tired of praying, pray some more, and then pray some more. Don't give up. Pray like you're an old widow irritating a judge. Pray so often that God will only answer your prayer request because you're irritating him. Pray like a little six-year-old who wants a treat. Can I have ice cream? Can I have ice cream? Can I have ice cream? No, serious, I can do this all day. Like, okay, fine, I'll give you the ice cream. That's it. He says, pray like that. Keep praying. Don't give up. Pray more. Pray more earnestly. Call other people. Say, I'm praying. He's not hearing my prayer. Maybe he'll hear yours. Tell other people, pray for this. What do you want? I need him to fix this thing. Keep praying. Keep asking. This is, he's taking you into the wilderness that you will fall on your face and pray and ask for help. We stand on the edge of a furnace like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we say, God, save me from the furnace. But you know what? Even if you don't, I know where I'm going. But God, show up. Help. Now, for some of us in the wilderness, we need to be searching for something more than just the answers to the difficulties we face. We need to find true water in the wilderness, and that's Christ himself. For many of us, we are going through the wilderness not because God wants to build your faith, but God needs to bring you to a place where you do have faith. The only way to navigate the, the, the wilderness of this life is with Christ. And the only way to have Christ is to receive his forgiveness through faith. There's no way to earn it. You can't be good enough to get it. You can't uh, give enough to get it. You can't stop sinning enough to get it. The only way to receive the water of Christ is to trust him and say, I have disobeyed and I've completely rebelled against you, God. You know what? How about you just forgive me? Jesus died on the cross. He rose again. I want to rise too. And guess what God's going to say? You're in. By faith, we have been saved. Christ is the water in the wilderness. When we find Christ, we find shade, we find water, and we find rest. Finally this, last point. In the wilderness with God, we can be people of joy. 
Joyful people are people who are at rest in Christ, even in the difficulties of life. Joy doesn't mean fake happiness. Joy doesn't mean I'm not sad. Joy just says this. Oh, my whole life is falling apart. That's terrible. I know where I'm going. Joy is a foundation of strength that says, I have my purpose and my meaning attached to something greater than the world we face here today. Guess what? The wilderness is wildernessy. And we're not home yet. Let's see by God's faith that he grows us to be the kind of people that don't need to grumble, but we complain. We can rest in his power and we can enjoy his blessings.